I'm Fash Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we're talking to Michelle Goldberg, a Pulitzer Prize-winning op-ed columnist for The New York Times. We get her take on the Biden administration's performance to date. We discuss the Democrats' branding problem. And my personal favorite, we talk a little bit about life in New York City as the city starts to open up from the pandemic. And for once, we actually end this conversation on a positive note. Yeah, it's nice to switch things up every now and again and be optimistic. <laughs> um, speaking of optimism, Faz, let's talk for just a moment about infrastructure. To recap, for those who maybe like me have been tuning out of this a little bit, here's what's going on. President Biden announced a bipartisan breakthrough on infrastructure. During his press conference, he said he wouldn't sign that bill unless he also got a reconciliation bill that had funding for things like childcare, clean energy, and other Democratic priorities. After getting a lot of heat from Republicans, he almost immediately walked that back. There has been a lot of talk about this, and I think it's worth taking a few minutes to break it all down. So, Faz, you're the expert. What's going on? Well, I'm not as worried as many uh, of our friends on the left. Let me start with that and say that uh, the president gets paid the big bucks and has to make hard decisions and juggle a lot of different things. And one of the things he's trying to do right now is pass both an infrastructure funding and a bill for all of his other family plans and jobs plans priorities. And this month of July, all of it succeeds or doesn't. So this is momentous. In order to get this whole damn thing passed, you've got to have trust. And that trust is sometimes missing and hard to come by. And yet I do think that there's a heavy case for optimism in this moment, because I think the president understands that he can pass both of these items through the Senate, including with the support of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema and other moderate Democrats can pass both of these things. And then they go over to the House and Speaker Pelosi holds all the cards. And we all know she's pretty good at uh, managing that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that she's going to let one of these items pass without the other one also passing. And so that's why I say I think both of them need to pass in order for the whole thing to happen. If one of them fails, it would require you having to muster all of the Democratic votes for a very large reconciliation bill. And I could imagine that there would be a lot of hemming and hawing from our moderates at that point. So I do think it's better if both of them can pass together and it's on a track. So is this the best possible outcome assuming that we don't get rid of the filibuster? On the domestic agenda, yes, right? Because mm-hmm. the the other piece, Amanda, you and I have had a number of conversations, in, and we will have this conversation mm-hmm. with Michelle Goldberg about voting rights. This doesn't cure those, right? Mm-hmm. So the best hope here is that for the domestic agenda, jobs plan, families plan, making good on the promises that Democrats have been making for years on helping the middle class, the working class of this country, this is the great opportunity. And I do believe it's on a track to get done. And then when it gets done, hopefully it enhances our political standing with voters heading into November 2022, with the caveat that we still need to do something about voting rights in this country. So it is, I think, a really ballsy move on behalf of the legislators and the president, and I'm excited about it. I'm also, I'll admit, waiting for things to be real. I don't want to get emotionally invested in it until there's bills written and and up for a vote. I mean, one of the challenges here is how we get people excited about Mm -hmm. this. And I understand, and I'm very empathetic towards this idea that we are very frustrated and feel very concerned about voting rights. But the opportunity to pass expansions of home care, expansions of green energy funding, expansions of healthcare access in America, a whole variety of things that could be 
very impactful in people's lives. I don't get the sense that there's a high level of enthusiasm <laughs> as there could be and should be of passing what arguably will be the most progressive domestic agenda since, let's say, LBJ. Well, I think part of it is we've had our hopes crushed so many times before. You know, we started this administration talking about possibly canceling student loan debt. Nothing ever happened. We talked about childcare reform. Maybe we'll get there eventually, but it feels so far away that I don't want to get excited about something and then not have it come to fruition. So I do think when we pass a bill, and I believe you when you say that there's a pretty good chance we can get this done, that there will be incredible enthusiasm. But I don't fault activists and operatives and, and Democratic folks alike for feeling kind of wary because we've been burned before on this. And I, I have some concern, Amanda, on that score that mm. while it's going to be a very bold and progressive agenda that passes, I have concerns that if all of the elements are not included, you're going to basically set up a situation of the left being upset over not getting exactly all the things that were promised. Well, I think it becomes a tautological problem of folks don't want to get too excited about something that might not happen and then don't feel the fire to fight for what could possibly happen. And because we don't fight, we don't get all the things that might happen. And it's a really hard problem to solve. I would love to be wrong about assuming that the Republican Party almost never operates in good faith. Mm, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. No, it's certainly Mitch McConnell spending some time trying to tank this bipartisan infrastructure deal that's been cut. He's not a big fan of it. He almost immediately rushed to Fox News mm -hmm. and has been consistently on right-wing radio trying to dismantle what could be a bipartisan effort in the Senate because I think he sees the political concern. Is there any chance that a bipartisan bill failing breaks the filibuster fever? Not yet. I'm empathetic to where Biden is on this, which is that he's got to pass his domestic agenda. And if he comes out railing on filibuster, that hurts his standing with Manchin and Cinema, whose votes he absolutely 100% needs in order to pass his domestic agenda. So he's going to stick with them for now. That said, after it passes, all bets are off. Okay, that's enough talking infrastructure for the moment. Let's play our conversation with Michelle Goldberg from The New York Times. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for joining the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's kick it off this way. How's the Joe Biden presidency going for you? I mean, look, I think he definitely exceeded my expectations out of the gate. You know, especially when you look at some of the second order appointments, they're not that different from the people that you would imagine being appointed if Elizabeth Warren was president, right? right. It looks like they're going to pass a big, exciting infrastructure deal through reconciliation. I mean, we'll see, but with climate stuff and the child care as infrastructure that feminists have been talking about for decades. I mean, Joe Biden is definitely the most progressive president of my lifetime, which is not saying that much. But it's, <laughs> you know, Merrick Garland just announced that he was challenging the Georgia voter suppression bill, that they're starting a task force to crack down on threats against election workers. So I think they're doing most of the things that progressives have wanted them to do. And some of the things that they're not doing, it's not clear to me that they could do. And so I see that people are super frustrated that more is not happening. But it's not clear to me that there is actually anything Biden could be doing that would be moving Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. I, obviously, I, I agree with a lot of your assessments of overperformance on policy. I think that generally speaking, I'll start with my struggles with this administration, which are 
One, that what accrues to Joe Biden to his political benefit may not accrue to the Democratic Party. And so we are still in a struggle over changing the Democratic brand in order to ensure that we keep the House and the Senate in 2022 and obviously the presidency going forward. And so on that score, I think there's a lot of things that are accruing properly and rightfully to Joe Biden that aren't necessarily, I think, portending to help the Democratic brand. We'll see. But like what? So I think that this is where we get into it. Are we on a path to maintaining the House or not? And you take the Joe Biden victory of 2020. He wins, but we lose seats in the House. So that means that the harder challenge here is what does the Democratic Party stand for beyond Joe Biden? How does he help remake it? And that takes not just being a wonderful administrator of the government, which I think he's doing right, nice appointments, making sure we're keeping an agenda and an executive action agenda on the table, but it means being a political head of a party as well. Not to be fatalistic here, but I think I agree with Michelle. I'm not sure there's anything he could do to help today to reform the party brand to such an extent that it would overcome the structural barriers, which we've gotten into quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Assuming the redistricting process plays out as we think it will, in which Republicans can win back the four or five seats they need simply through the redistricting process, let alone actually winning majority votes in a lot of these places, is there something Biden could be doing differently to reform the brand? Well, that, that's the question and conversation to have here, right? So I, we may have a disagreement on it, but I tend to think that sometimes you need a friction and you need a fight. And I think in Joe Biden, you have a return to normalcy and that there's a return to bipartisanship, mm-hmm. that we feel good about our government. He's going to be caretaking, he's going to be managing, and there's less friction, which is fine, right? That's a nice way to kind of build some support out there. But then you ask the question, well, what is the Democratic Party fighting for? I guess my own desire would be that we get more closely affiliated and associated with the fights that his policy agenda espouses, but that he doesn't animate. So if you're going to make the wealthy pay their fair share, you're going to take on large corporations that don't pay enough in taxes, you're going to fight for working people to join a union, you kind of got to get out there and start to sell it politically in addition to the policy. And I will stipulate that there's still time to go. Mm-hmm. He's got another half of this year and then <laughs> early next year. But I, I do think that the challenge here is if you're going to be a wonderful compromiser who brings Republicans to the table, who is negotiating properly, who's returning normalcy, who doesn't engage in the Trump-like fights and temper tantrums, that you know, when you're remaking the Democratic brand, you still need some friction. You still need a fight. Well, and there might be a conflict there between him sort of getting out there right. and picking these fights. We'll see. I think it's highly um, uncertain whether we'll get 55 Republican votes for the kind of bipartisan part of this two-track infrastructure plan. But I kind of like Matt Iglesias' idea of the secret Congress, that there are things that Congress will do on a bipartisan basis when they have low political salience and people aren't paying a lot of attention. And that as soon as they become polarized and visible, then you're much less likely to have Republican cooperation. I mean, it's not that I think you can really count on any Republican cooperation, period, but there might be some incentives for some Republicans to get on board with a purely physical infrastructure plan. And ultimately, I think that 2022 is likely to come down more to whether Joe Biden's presidency appears to have been successful than whether or not he has led a rebranding of the Democratic Party. I hope so. I don't believe that, though. I'm just coming from a place of personal opinion, not to say (laughs) you're wrong or anything, but that I don't think that, hey, if Joe Biden got shots in the arm, he registered direct payments, the economy opened back up, 
kids are going back to school in the fall. All those are wonderful things. I am not yet convinced. I don't believe that people are going to give them credit and say Democrats own the House now. Let's switch the seats in Texas, switch the seats in Georgia, switch the seats in Florida, move this to the Democratic column because I like what Joe Biden has done for me. But what's the sort of counterexample where people say, yes, I really need to give Joe Biden the backup he needs to do X? That is the question, right? <laughs> you got to got to get out there. There's a fight over the Republican agenda, what certain members of the House and the Senate are doing that you've got to raise up and build as the friction points. Like, hey, this person fought against the direct payments and make it more real. Again, I'm stipulating that there's time to do this, but I, I want it to be on people's radar is my point. I think that the bigger problem than anything Joe Biden is or isn't doing is that people are really burnt out, right? People have been through four years on ultra high constant alert. They've been through 15 months of this like hellish, soul crushing, terrifying pandemic. It's totally understandable that people don't want to be super attuned to both these extremely demoralizing culture war battles and these moving through molasses negotiations in Congress to get us towards an infrastructure bill, which often feels like you're just bashing your head against a brick wall. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Republicans have, I think, a really effective strategy of keeping people super mobilized, right. not really through anything to do with what the government's doing, right? But through this, this critical race theory. Right. Yeah. And I just, I don't know what the answer to that on a psychological level is because people do need a break. Yeah. I don't know what's the right answer, but in some level, you what I'm trying to search for here is what keeps people excited on the progressive side. There's some demoralization around the voting rights thing. We all want it to pass. It's likely not going to. So how do you keep people excited? That's why I say friction, right? I'm trying to animate something that you're fighting for to make sure that people turn out in 2022. It's really critical that they do. So Amanda, how do you keep people excited? Well, I I am sort of chewing this over as we're talking about it. And like, I don't want people to fight anymore. I am tired of fighting. I want them to just get shit done. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the fighting is part of the process and that there's a subset of the Democratic activist and volunteer and donor base who wants to see taking a stand. You know, the Texas Democrats storming out of the House to take a stand for voting rights. Powerful stuff. But as much as anyone who pays attention to politics, I too am tired. <laughs> I would love to tune out of this infrastructure two track, you know, back and forth, inner working negotiations. I don't want to watch the sausage being made. I want them to just deliver things. And I have to imagine that a lot of people like Michelle noted are also burnt out of the fighting. And this is sort of, I think, the both benefit of the Biden presidency, which is the return to normal, the return to like, you don't actually have to pay attention that much and the danger of it and that it can be very problematic for people to step aside. But I also think there's a separate question of where we need to win in 2022 to hold the House and uh, hold or increase our majority in the Senate. And does that actually rely on a deep progressive vision or does that rely on more moderate communities? And I don't know. I, we don't have the maps yet. We don't have the outlines here of what the stakes will be in 2022. But it's a structural issue at play that I think is worth considering. I can be resident pessimist, Michelle, here <laughs> is in that I feel like democracy crumbles while we sleep. And, and there's a danger of we may not want to fight, but you know who does? 
our opponents. Republicans love <laughs> fighting. Not, yeah. No, that's real. <laughs> no let up there. No let up. Hey, we lost uh, the presidency. Shoot, let's change some voting rights laws. Let's kill some unemployment benefits. Let's go on the war on critical race theory. Let's cut some SNAP benefits. We got some stuff to do across the states to try to enact a conservative agenda and mobilize our base. Right. No, I think that's right. But again, I, to me, it's like the question is, what should Biden or the administration be doing that they're not doing? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, If we're not going to be able to pass SR1, then you need to have the Justice Department going out this guns blazing, which they are. You need to try again with the John Lewis voting rights bill, which you're more likely to get some support from Joe Manchin, even though I'm almost positive that they'll filibuster it. Maybe there's a question that the filibuster pushes some people over the edge towards filibuster reform. But it seems to me that the things that need to be done, people are doing them. It's just that there are certain immovable structural Mm -hmm. obstacles and telling people to run at those obstacles even harder, have more rallies to try to sway Christian Cinema or Joe Manchin, even though none of those rallies changed their incentives. I think people are really coming up against this dilemma, which is you want to do something It's not clear what the something is. I mean, on my absolute worst days, I think there's no point in any of this, which is a rough place to be in as a professional political operative and as an American of like, you know, there's almost nothing we can count on happening given the state of the modern Republican Party that will counterbalance the combination of voter suppression, rigged maps and broken election certification and even vote counting processes in a lot of these states. And that is not a healthy place to sit in. And maybe there's something that Biden can do, like sneak in a a line in a bill that triggers stimulus checks to go out next September (laughs) or something like that. Maybe there's something here that goes around some of the immovable forces that I think, Michelle, you quite capably point to. Well, Biden is a patient person. Mm -hmm. There's virtue to his politics of the manner in which he does it, as we've seen already. Uh, His ideas are popular. If you were a different person, the fire under his ass, Joe Biden, (laughs) would be, while he is opposed to the filibuster, would announce I am no longer opposed to the filibuster. Mm -hmm. And I need to get shit done in the short amount of time that we've got here. And Joe Manchin Cinema, I'm getting out and I am going to your states and you're going to stand with me and talk about it. But that's a different kind of version. But who cares if Joe Biden goes to West Virginia I mean, how much did Joe Biden lose West Virginia by? Like 39 points or something? Sure. Yeah, we'll stipulate West Virginia's (laughs) challenging, but Arizona's not. And you take one at a time here. The danger of democracy crumbling is real. Losing the House is real. Losing the Senate is real. And if you were so fired up starting sometime late this year, early next year, say, hey, this has to get done because otherwise gerrymandering will screw us all in the very near future. And we come to a point where it nearly becomes impossible for Democrats to win key House and Senate races. So then what do you do about it? The filibuster is obviously the thing that's standing in the way. And so you'd have to peel off one, each of those at a time. And I would argue that he's really the only person who'd have any shot in hell to do it, right? To convince the Senate to say, hey, you have to stand with the president's agenda is popular. We need to get this thing done. And he is the right person to do it, quite frankly, because of his own concerns about changing the filibuster rules and his popularity. Again, to me, there's just this sort of impetus to say, like, do something. It's clear to me that it would be counterproductive for him to go to West Virginia, Mm -hmm. right? Because Joe Manchin is like so much more popular than he is. Right. I mean, look, I think Kirsten Sin was awful and people should seriously consider a primary challenge against her. 
you know, because unlike Joe Manchin, she's obviously not the only Democrat who can win a Senate seat in Arizona, as we now know. Mm-hmm. But I just I'm all for like doing something because I think we're in a really catastrophic place. I just nobody has elucidated to me what the something should be. There is the something, right? You get out there. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is you're trying and you don't know if it'll succeed. And you're right to cast a potential doubt on whether his visits and whether him both internally and externally trying to put some heat on uh, those senators is the thing that gets them to yes. At some point, you have to go down swinging and look like you've really exhausted every shot at trying to pass a democracy-saving effort. And so we're starting with some lawsuits. We're starting with some good conciliatory approaches to try to build bipartisanship through an infrastructure bill, which would then lead to a hopefully a a larger reconciliation bill that has a lot of good stuff for working class people. Hopefully that then culminates in a renewed effort to ensure that voting rights legislation gets passed, because I think we all share this grave fear that without it, we are headed into a return of a more demonic version of the Trump years. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking with Michelle Goldberg about the Democratic Party's branding problem and about my personal favorite incoming mayor of Buffalo, New York, India Walton, a self-described socialist who just won the Democratic nomination. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times. Outside of Joe Biden, six months-ish into 2021, how are we feeling about the state of the Democratic Party? You know, I actually do tend to believe like the David Shore analysis. Can you define that for folks who might not be familiar? Sure. I kind of feel like I shouldn't because it's going to be a little bit like a game of telephone. (laughs) David Shore is a data analyst who identifies as a socialist, but sees the American electorate as quite conservative particularly on racial and immigration issues. So I think the the big question for Democrats to me is how they navigate the backlash that's going on right now, Mm -hmm. right? There's this extremely intense backlash to critical race theory, which you can see, like people can say, well, this is AstroTurf and the money might be AstroTurf. The organizing muscle might be AstroTurf, but the people coming out and screaming, they didn't bust them in there, <laughs> right? Like yeah. there, it's clearly people who I think have all of this pent up angst about last year's racial justice protests. Maybe they had to go to DEI things at work that they really resent. They feel like their history, their kids are being taught is different than the history they were taught. They feel alienated from young people more generally, Uh which everybody I know who's over 40 feels alienated from young people more generally. (laughs) So I think they've quite successfully captured this complex of feelings and resentments and bitterness and unspoken racism. And they've channeled it all into a public school culture war. And public school culture wars have always been very good for the right, going back to busing, going back to integration, obviously, sex education, teaching of evolution. I mean, you see this over and over again. There's a quote I always come back to from Ralph Reed's saying that, like, I'd rather have a thousand school board seats and no president than like a president, no school board seats. Oh, I, I love that. So they are kind of mobilizing the grassroots. And the big question to me is how Democrats counter that, because then the other part of this backlash is a backlash driven by concerns about rising crime, which is real. And there's no point, I think, in saying, well, it's not as bad as the 90s because people just realize it's worse than it was a few years ago. 
You certainly see how that played out in the New York City mayoral elections. I don't know what is the way for Democrats to finesse this. I don't think that the right way is Bill Clinton-style third-way triangulating, but it's also not to pretend that people's anxieties aren't real and serious. So I don't know. I'm trying to think of like who I think in the Democratic Party is doing the best at speaking to this moment. And maybe part of the problem is that I can't. Faz, what do you think? How's the Democratic Party doing right now? I do think that the brand of Joe Biden is strong and good, but that the party is yet to catch up with it and be as popular as the policies that we espouse. I mean, our policies are more popular than the brand. And certainly there's been some demonization at work of the Democratic Party by the right for a long period of time to suggest that the things that animate the party are values that are mm-hmm. not true <laughs> to the lives that we live. And uh, maybe at some point we'd be talking about changing up some leadership. I love Speaker Pelosi. I think she's fantastic at her job, but I'm sure it's, at some point, you know, there will just be new generations of leadership here coming in that then have an opportunity to change how you're perceived. And I think some of it is that, quite frankly, the work that you do, Amanda, from the bottom up, that's where I think the struggle is. But I'm not sure that we're there because the brand is so diluted from a lot of different strains. This is a really complicated conversation around the Democratic Party brand because there is no singular brand of the Democratic Party except for government. Government that should work and deliver for you and make your life better and easier. And the best thing we can do to support the Democratic Party's brand is to make government functional. And so I do think to a certain extent, Biden is doing that and trying to rebuild some of that from the White House, which we know how broken the federal government was for the last four years. But I also think that we've seen how the Republican Party has engaged on the local level. You know, we've talked about critical race theory. We've talked about sort of the school board engagement, even some of the state legislative battles where they're going to far extremes in terms of anti-trans, anti-equality, anti-abortion. You know, they're able to push further to the right on some of these state and local fights to animate their base, in part because Biden doesn't, but also because that's where their values are. And what the Democratic Party has to do, not to toot my own horn here a little bit, but is the work that Run for Something is doing, which is empower as many possible Democrats as we can find to connect with voters about the values that they share in a way that is authentic to those different communities. Because in order to win nationally, we have to fight locally. You know, Michelle, you just wrote about India Walton. Yes, I know she was a run for something person. She was. And I got to talk to her for the Run for Something podcast. We did events with her, our staff worked with her. And for those who missed this, India Walton is the brand new Democratic nominee for the mayor of Buffalo. She's likely to win in the fall. It's a Democratic city. And she's the first woman mayor of Buffalo ever. She is a Black woman. She's in her late 30s. She became a mom at 14. She worked her way through nursing school in her early 20s. She went on to become a nonprofit executive, worked in uh, union organizing for a period of time. She is a socialist, but she is able to communicate with her voters in such a way that that association didn't really matter. Right. She's incredibly impressive. I mean, just to think of what she has gone through. I mean, the thing that she talks about inspiring her to become a nurse is that she had these extremely premature twins when she was 19 and she would go to the NICU and feel condescended to and disrespected Mm. and speak to people who didn't really care or expect her to understand what they were saying. And that made her want to become a nurse so that she could be in that position for another young woman sometime. And to think about going from that position where you've just gotten your GED to actually becoming a nurse with 
two extremely premature babies and a younger kid. I mean, to think about what it must take to do that is astonishing. But it was really interesting to me when I spoke to her because, as you said, she's a socialist. She's a person with radical politics. She actually has some of the same critique of the left that you hear from more conservative people you know, critique about the way that activists speak about alienating left-wing jargon. I don't think this made it into my piece, but she actually used the phrase cancel culture, (laughs) talking about it as a problem. The people feel like the Democratic Party, or at least the progressive movement, is extremely judgmental and it doesn't meet people where they are. I think she had a pretty savvy understanding of like, the progressive movement is basically a coalition of affluent, well-educated, largely white liberal professionals and working class people of color. And it's not a coalition that you can always naturally bring together. Mm -hmm. I mean, the big failure in the New York City race, it looks like, was that nobody was able to bring those two groups together. And instead, Eric Adams created a very different and sort of unprecedented coalition of working class people of color and moderate and conservative white people, right, which we haven't seen in the past. So, you know, what India Walton did was she created this coalition, which started with the white progressives. Mm -hmm. Then, as she described it, moved on to college educated people of color. And then the hardest part was really convincing older black people in churches and people who were definitely part of the Democratic machine, but were suspicious of super progressive politics and speaking about it in a way that made it really relevant to them. She's someone who decided to run for office during the mass protests over the murder of George Floyd, right? So she cares about police reform. She actually said that she doesn't use the phrase defund the police because she doesn't think it's good to start with D anything that Mm -hmm. that immediately gets voters thinking negatively. And so instead she talks about reallocating funding or fully funding other sorts of programs. And I think that Democrats sometimes put too much emphasis on messaging as opposed to political economy. At the same time, it seems like her sort of approach to messaging in this race really worked. Basically, a sort of very populist economic message with a culture that felt welcoming and understanding and willing to meet you where you are. What I've been inspired by to see in this batch of new wave of Democrats, and obviously a lot of them are from the left, but putting that aside too— Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the Jamal Bowman's, the Ilhan Omar's, the Rashida Tlaib's, and but you can go down the list of a bunch of others too who've just come into Congress. And you know, I, I would lump people like India Walton in it, which is that if you look at their lives, they came from working class backgrounds. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they lived it. You see, oh, I can associate with it because I know a principle like you. I've seen you know social workers like you. I've seen restaurant workers like you. I it makes sense. Right, and 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 I hate to say it, but another person who had that is Eric Adams yeah. in New York, right? Yeah. In a lot of ways, like an extremely reactionary figure that's going to be terrible for progressives. But in some ways, you can kind of compare his story to India Walton, right? Someone who talks about being arrested and being beaten up by the police and then deciding to become the police. It's like encountering this scary, alienating organization and deciding against all odds to master it. And so being able to speak from both inside and outside of it. But in seeing how it was so successful with completely different set of politics, but in some ways a sort of similar cultural story, 
I think, tells us a lot about where Democrats should be recruiting their candidates from. And I guess my point is that the messaging isn't then seen as something they figured out before they ran as the thing that they thought the populace would like to hear. No, instead, the messaging comes from lived experience and it is authentic to them. So when you hear you know, Rashida Tlaib talking about her experience of being in a family of, I don't know, it's like nine or 10 people and like the challenges of a mother who's having to work and feed that many kids, you know, and then the follow on is we need healthcare for all people. It feels like I'm not coming here to talk to Medicare for all because I saw a poll. Mm -hmm. It's because of my lived experience. And there's no surprise then to all of us that, hey, these are people who happen to be people of color. They come from, you know, diverse backgrounds. That is the working class of the current day and age. And so when those people run, guess what? They'll run both on a progressive platform because they've seen it in their own lives of the value for their communities that platform would bring. And they're received by the public as, oh, yeah, that is the real article. You're not telling me that you want healthcare for all, or you want a free tuition at public colleges, universities, you want more tax on the rich because you've read it in a poll, because you see it. Right. But I think that's true in democratic districts where it becomes more complicated is in districts that are a lot more competitive. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I think that what you're saying is a recipe for progressive success in democratic districts, right? Or this recipe for progressive success in democratic primaries. It's a different recipe for suburban Virginia. It has to be calibrated to the place. But what I am suggesting, though, is when you recruit people from a working class background, they happen to just have an appeal because it's real. And so whether you're in Western PA, you know, or you were in rural Virginia, the how we select our candidates is critical. And it is, in my mind, one of the lessons taking away is not only that AOC espouses an, a certain agenda and the popularity of the agenda, it's where she came from and why she decided to run. And if we're preferencing those, the things that, quite frankly, Amanda works on, making sure that the door is open to them, that we are, as a party, looking to try to recruit from that would aid us in a significant way. Well, and I think, Baz, you were trying a little bit to distinguish between message and candidate. But I actually think in this circumstance, the message and the messenger are intimately tied. And for Joe Biden to say something and for AOC to use the exact same words, hypothetically, they would be received very, very differently. So as we think about like what the 2022 midterms look like in terms of where we're getting our House candidates from, who's rising to rising for Senate, these gubernatorial elections, and much further down the ballot, the state ledge and local elections, it's ensuring that the candidates who may not seem like our best candidates are the ones who are rooted in their community and connect with their voters on the values that they share in a way that is authentic. And it, in fact, is totally separate from what Biden is doing and how he's talking about the Democratic Party. The best thing... I'm getting riled up here, but I think the best thing that Biden could do is just throw as much money as he can to as many Democrats running for office as can in as many places as he can to ensure that those folks can communicate the Democratic Party brand to their voters in a way that he can't necessarily. Let's take a quick ad break and we'll be right back with more of our conversation with The New York Times' Michelle Goldberg. And we're back. Uh, Michelle, I was going to change topics and I want to conclude with this one because I've read some of your very thoughtful considerations of how this pandemic has kind of really changed social cohesion, how we operate in this environment. And I'd like to think about how we maintain some degree of optimism going forward. Well, I think it's been magical to see New York City come alive. Mm -hmm. 
for my son, the closure of Coney Island was like the ultimate symbol of the pandemic to me when he would say like, you know, it's been however long since we've been to Coney Island. We didn't even get to go to Coney Island last summer. And so as soon as Coney Island opened, we went two days in a row. And, you know, we were waiting in line for the bumper cars and they were blasting some like super cheesy pop song. And you started seeing people dancing in line because it had been like the first time that they'd been in public with loud music. And I almost started sobbing just to see that again. I mean, and you know, and right now in, in New York City, you know, this is this is a high class problem. But, you know, you can't get a restaurant reservation. <laughs> the streets are filling up again. There's like a sort of festive atmosphere everywhere. And so... I think people had this idea because New York City was a really hard place to be during the pandemic when all of the people were just stuck in their small apartments. There was this idea like, well, will New York City ever recover? And there's still some question, I think, about, you know, how long will it take? But that's something I'm optimistic about. I'm optimistic about the future of this city and the fact that eventually the people who move to Westchester are going to be like, what have I done? I hope they feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot to be analyzed about the way New York City handled the pandemic. I'm just saying that the way New York City is now emerging from the pandemic, urbanism is still just like a joyful and vibrant thing. Yeah, I do get the sense like I live in Brooklyn and I walk through the neighborhood and everyone's sitting outside and eating and drinking and kids are playing and some of the streets are closed to cars. And even in the middle of the day, the outdoor cafes are filled with people just like sitting and working and talking. And I don't know, there's an argument for like, yeah, maybe the pandemic increased dispersion in a certain sense, but I also think showed how much people like to be together and that density and community and a sense of place and shared experience is really valuable. I don't know. It might change some of the ways that, especially some of these like non-urban environments, rethink what the next decade or more looks like in terms of how they plan, how they build, how they grow, hypothetically. We'll leave that conversation there. Uh, Michelle Goldberg, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, Michelle. It's been great. So Amanda, before we leave, let's wrap up by highlighting some of the points we discussed with Michelle. One is this idea of creating friction to unite the Democratic Party heading into the midterms and motivate our base. And by friction, you know, it's kind of picking an enemy and mobilizing against that person or thing or entity. Where do you come down, Amanda? Yeah, I think this is something where you and I might differ just a little bit around the edges. I do think it's important to fight for something. I do think it's important to have a proactive vision. And I think it bears out a little bit that voters are sick of fighting, (laughs) that at the end of the day, we just want stuff done and we don't really care how we get there. So in many ways, I think the Democratic Party needs to be finding a way to deliver those results in whatever form that takes and then bragging about them. And maybe it matters less about how we get there and more about how we sell it after the fact. What about you, Fez? Well, yeah, I do have a a shade of difference on this. I mean, you know, this Biden argument of bringing the country together, reducing the temperature, making people feel positive that government can work again. (laughs) Sure, let's give that a shot. I operate with a little bit of hesitation that generally speaking, I think there's a lot of angry people who are righteously angry that they have been cast aside Mm -hmm. by politics and by policymakers and no one gives a damn about them. And even while you deliver benefits direct payments, vaccinations. I do not think you will reach them until they sense that you have an understanding of what they are feeling they're up against. And from my perspective, that's why it's important that all the good things that we pass and all the good things that we fight for 
it's important to identify who's been standing in the way. It's often a lot of corporate entities. There are obviously Republican governors and Republican state legislators who are standing in the way. And I would be for calling those out and explaining why we're doing what we're doing in a much more aggressive way. I'm excited, I think, to see how this plays out throughout the next 18 months leading up to the midterms, because the reality is we are going to have some really good things to present to the American people as having delivered, and we're going to have some things that we couldn't get with clear enemies for why. So we'll get a chance to sort of see which hypothesis here wins out the day. The other issue that you and I got into with Michelle was the idea that Biden should apply pressure to Senators Manchin and Cinema and others to go to their home states, convince them to abolish the filibuster, put the pressure on them. What's your takeaway here? Is that something that's realistic? If Biden were to go to West Virginia, Manchin's more popular than Biden in West Virginia. Nevertheless, it will still cause problems for Joe Manchin when you go into the home state of a sitting senator and you say, hey, I am going to inform and educate mm -hmm. the people in your state about an agenda. That would be all over the news. And I think that'd be a helpful thing. I don't know. I'm not sold that there's any magic thing that Joe Biden could do that would fix this. But I'm also not sure what the alternative is. Will it help? Uh -huh. Could it hurt? You know, at that point, if you've tried everything else, row a presidential visit at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> all right, Amanda, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Michelle Goldberg again for joining us on this week's Battleground. And as a reminder, we would love to hear from you. You can leave us a message at 929-399-6748, or you can shoot us an email at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Adovino is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 